Okay, dive brief. Dive groups, Rory and Philip, Mick and Catherine. Air, Mick. At 220. Kath. 310, 7 litre, 300 bar. Uh, Philip. 230. Okay, the dive plan is to drop in the shallow area just near uh, Ox Island there. Descend, take our bearings and head south towards the sand. Get your air in. Last buddy check, air in your jacket. Check with the skipper, all clear skipper. All clear, okay. all clear. Clear behind, go, go. Clear behind, Philip. Clear behind, okay, thank you. Keep, keep The sky was almost on the ground for our first dive, so there was next to no sunlight. Ten metres down, I could barely see beyond the end of my arm. It was extremely disorienting. If I wasn't able to see which way my bubbles were going, I wouldn't have been able to tell up from down. That and my ears refusing to equalise as we went deeper. Ahead through the gloom, I thought I could make out some plastic litter on the bottom, though it turned out to be jellyfish just two metres away from my face. How do you find a shipwreck when you can't even find the seabed? As we hit 25 metres, light started to bounce off the sand. The whole area became illuminated. It brought to mind the way one of the 1969 dive team had described the area where they said they had descended onto the ballast rock of the ship. And then after about 50 feet, it was like the whole seabed opening up to us. It's white sand, it was really spectacular and we felt as if we were coming from the roof of a great auditorium. The clear, featureless seabed was reflecting a lot of sunlight back up, so the visibility increased to about four or five metres. No kelp, no rocks, no fish, no nothing, exactly as Colm O'Brien had said it would be. We came across this very large, unusual heap of stones in the middle of nowhere. We were in the right area. Now, the hunt begins. In 1588, 26 ships of the Spanish Armada sank off the Irish coast. Only six have ever been found. This is Treasure Island, the hunt for the Falcon Blanco, an RTE original podcast. Episode 5. Full Fathom 15. It was a search of the kind you'd never do today. You'd use, use geophysics, you, you, you'd hire a, a boat with a side scan sonar, and you'd probably have picked up the thing on the first, uh, you know, first day's work. Uh, we couldn't do that in 1968 because the, the techniques hadn't been invented. When I had talked to Colin Martin about the likely origins of the anchor in Paddy O'Halloran's back garden, I also tried to get some tips on how he had found the Santa Maria della Rosa in Blasket Sound in 68. So what we used was a naval technique uh, called swimline searches, where uh, 
a long line of divers linked by uh, just an ordinary line of cord um, with a, a, at the end, each end diver had a buoy which went to the surface, so there'd be a little orange buoy at either end of the line of divers that was down at the bottom of the sea. And a man on the surface in a boat uh, could pass simple signals down the, the, these, these um, uh, rising buoyed lines. Uh, go right, Long pulls, go left, sharp stop. tugs. That's right. Five quick tugs, five bells meant I found something and am marking it. Nine divers, several metres apart, guided from the surface, communicating by a kind of Morse code along a rope, could cover large swathes of the seabed. But it still took that team six months to find anything. It, it, it was very adaptable. It just took a long time. How many men in total were in the water? We had up to 20 in the water. How many dives, do you think? Well, it was about six months, so it would be about... Two dives a day, five days a week, six days yeah, a week? Five days a week. 20 dives in a week. I could actually give you the figure. I mean, but we're talking about 80 dives in a month and six months of that? Yeah, yeah. I have a maximum of 10 dives. <laughs> the chances of finding something with two people are pretty remote. Ah, uh, well, people win the lottery... You might be lucky. His politeness made it all the worse. I was now suffering from a very serious case of imposter syndrome. I had no business hunting for shipwrecks. Back at 30 metres, or 15 fathoms, it was becoming abundantly clear that in the real world, you don't just get lucky. There were four of us diving, but the visibility was very poor. That meant that we could only swim about five metres apart to avoid missing anything. So if we all swam in unison and kept our eyes peeled, we would still only be covering a strip of the seabed no more than 20 metres wide. Needle in a haystack territory is what I'm saying, except that it's really like being dropped in a field of haystacks and told to find the right one before you can begin looking for the needle. And we had to do it in a hurry. 30 metres is so deep that we had to allow for lengthy decompression stops to avoid getting the bends that it left us with only 15 minutes at the bottom. Clearly, I needed the guidance of an experienced wreck hunter. So how many wrecks have you found? Um, around a dozen. The Polwell, the Lanarkshire off Lambay, the Marley off Hoth, the Vesper. The audition process was very short. Rory Golden, who runs a dive shop in Dublin, was the obvious choice to play salty old sea dog Quinn to my landlubbing chief Brody. You can't ask him a question without it becoming a story from some point in a 30-year career of diving wrecks. I discovered the wreck of the the paddle steamer, the Queen Victoria, which sank off, hit the uh, the Bailey Lighthouse in the 1800s, and not knowing that Roy had actually discovered it the week before. So we were both going around saying we discovered the same wreck at the same time. 
And if none of these ship names means anything to you, well, there's one that will. Have you dived anything that I would have heard the name of? Well, I think somebody uh, once said that uh, diving to the Titanic in a submersible isn't diving. But uh, I've been lucky to have been on two expeditions to the Titanic, one in the summer of 2000 and the summer of um, 2005. He didn't find the necklace the old lady dropped in the ocean, but he did recover something almost more iconic. We were going around the wreck looking for various items, and I, I discovered the remains of the main ship's wheel, uh, having seen a semicircular shape sticking out of a pile of, of debris. And... Um, the ship's wheel the from main, the Titanic. The main ship's wheel that was in the wheelhouse that Quartermaster Hitchens was, was standing behind when the ship struck the iceberg. Going back along the officer's deck in the last 15 minutes of the dive, I spotted a semicircular shape sticking out of a pile of debris and it was glistening a bit and I said to Ralph, do you see what I see? He was watching on the cameras, I was looking through the portal and he said, I think we've just redeemed ourselves because we hadn't found anything of significance on that particular dive. What I had seen was the boss, or the, if you like, the hub of the wheel that was attached to a shaft that was attached to an A-frame. And there was, when the robotic arm from the sub went in and pulled it out, all that came into vision. And when we got back to the surface, um, the archaeologists on board stood back because the rule was that the crew who found the items were the first people to look and touch them. And Ralph White stood back and said, you spotted it, you touch it. And I became the first person to touch the weight of the Titanic since the ship went down in 1912. On this dive, though, Rory had to devote more time to keeping an eye on a novice diver than on looking for telltale signs of a wreck. I was so excited and so determined to cover as much ground as possible that I was herring off around the seabed chasing after optical illusions. The reduced visibility meant that everything more than five metres away appeared like Colin O'Brien's mound of ballast looming just ahead. In my unfocused enthusiasm, I was leading us around in circles and into deeper water, thereby reducing the amount of time that we could spend searching. In no time at all, our dive computers were telling us that we had to head back to the surface. I had a reality check after that first dive. There was something faintly ridiculous about this whole treasure hunting quest. For a start, why were all treasure hunters exclusively middle-aged men? Almost everyone I had met on this journey was male. Should we not all just go out, buy a fast convertible or start running triathlons instead? I think many who choose to do this were in search of an experience rather than gold. Like the one that Colin Martin now treasures more than anything else that he ever found on the seabed. And the treasure is often where you least expect it. It's in suddenly making a connection through an object uh, with some, a real person from the past. I'm not sure I should tell this story because un unfortunately um, it was mislaid among a collection of other 
just scraps of lead. But we found a scrap of lead on the Trinidad Valencia. It was a little bit, it was like a wafer. It was a, 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 a thin piece of, of sheet lead. And right in the middle of it, there were the impressions of human teeth that had almost bitten the lead in half. In spite of being underwater at the time with a lot of other things on his mind, Colin made an instant human connection across four centuries. Unquestionably, that had been given to somebody who was going to undergo an operation, probably an amputation, without anaesthetic. And this is what they'd placed between his teeth. Rory Golden's treasured moment came having removed objects from inside the rooms of a perfume maker on board the Titanic. Michelle, the archaeologist, had opened up what looked like a leather satchel and inside of which were small bottles. And they were labelled Adolf Salfeld, Manchester. And when we opened these stoppers, these were perfume samples that Adolf Salfeld from Manchester, who survived the sinking, had been bringing to America. They had sunk to the seabed two and a half miles deep. The pressure hadn't crushed them, which it should have. And when we opened up these samples, these amazing smells wafted all around the laboratory. Lavender, roses, limes, lemons, patchouli. It was as if the ship had come back to life in that particular room. What I want to pick your brains on this time, James, is cannonballs and how many cannonballs you can remember people having found and where they oh, found Oh, yeah, them. that's right, yeah. I had a little niggle at the back of my head that I wanted to follow up on, and it led me to an abandoned cottage high up on the hill overlooking the harbour on the south side of Inishboffin with 90-year-old James Coyne. Yeah. No, you? here. James might be one of the oldest people on Inishboffin, though he has the impish smile of someone 80 years his junior. But when he starts talking about the island's history, his face becomes very serious. People named Maddens, they were supposed to live in there, that him. That man, the father, was supposed to be Madden, man. Madden? Madden, yeah. And you don't know his first name, no? I do not know, no. I only heard that there was Madden's that lived in that house long ago. In deciding to dive off the south side of Davalon, Tom Clune's cannonball living under the TV had made up my mind for me. It was a match in size for a Spanish cannon which was on board the Falcon Blanco. But beyond that, I only had Tom's understanding of how it had come ashore. So that type of thing either was washed up very near the East Beach or was dragged up by nets. You don't know which? Unfortunately, no. Um, I wasn't that interested in how. I, I knew it came from a Spanish wreck. The, the person who gave it to us was well aware of its importance. Tom had taken it on faith that it came from an Armada ship and had come out of the water close to Davalon. But I felt a bit nervous doing that, when there were possibly many other ways that cannonballs could have ended up on Inishboffin. You'd find them, I mean, some people found them in gardens, did they? They did, yeah. We had one... Uh, I don't know what happened. It we happened. had one there right in the floor bed. Right, it must be covered with clay. It, it must be gone down in the That's ground. Right, there was maybe someone pitched it up, I don't know. Patsy Coyne chipped in. Sure, cannonballs weren't that special. Didn't they have one in the flower bed that was so unremarkable to them that they had never thought of going to the trouble to dig it out? 
They could see the look of incredulity on my face. And so, seconds later, we were all on our hands and knees in the garden I trying to find it. I had you up there. Up there, no. There was no bed in the dining was there. But that was in it, like. Well, it was here in the garden. This place was open. It was gone, but there were other cannonballs. There was the one behind the bar in days used in drinking competitions to see who could hold it at arm's length for the longest. And there was this one that James brought me to see, which had been lodged in the gable end of the deserted cottage overlooking the harbour. Oh, I heard that they used to take, take fishermen off. You know, they bodied men and bring them away. They captured them, bring them away. The English Navy used to press gang the island's fishermen straight out of Curracks into a life of effective slavery at sea. One man called Madden managed to evade the press gang by slipping his Currock between two rocks, where the bigger English vessel wasn't able to follow. But from the lads, got clear of them. They down there, they landed on their own days. They ran through the fields. As Madden was running up the fields towards his house, the vengeful press-ganging sailors started taking pot shots at him with a small cannon. One of those shots whistled past his ear and lodged in the cornerstone of the gable end of this house. Sure, you and they got away on them. They might have tried to kill one. No? I mean, so, yeah. so they wanted to punish them for running away? For running away, that's but they couldn't take them. And, and that, that shot? It's a cardinal shot. But that, that stone is not there now because that gable is knocked and built since... The story was more than mere folklore because after a bit of rummaging, James's wife Patsy was able to produce the split cannonball from Madden's house. Can I reach in there, yeah? Oh, it's coming out in two, two, two bits. In two bits, I'd say. Look at that. The Royal Ordnance Society confirmed for me that the shot was within the range of English Navy guns of that calibre and there are plenty of historical accounts of the English press gang along the West Coast. This meant that there were other, more likely reasons for a cannonball being on Inishbofin than having been retrieved from the wreck of an Armada ship. Add to which the late John Cunyon, John the Bolt Cunyon, as he was known, the man who had given the cannonball to the clunes, was, in the confidential opinion of two islanders, not beyond telling people what they wanted to hear. Had Cunyon, knowing the Clune's interest in the Falcon Blanco, given Tom a very generous gift and allowed Tom to fill in the blanks? Tom, after all, had nothing to prove that the cannonball was from the Falcon Blanco, other than Cunyon's say-so. So that type of thing either was washed up very near the East Beach, always dragged up by nets. You don't know which? Unfortunately, no. The cannonball had been the thing that had tilted the scales in my mind in favour of believing the 1969 divers. That cannonball was now the main reason that Rory and the other divers were at this minute in the sea off Davalon. Had I gotten it disastrously wrong? Next time on the final episode of Treasure Island. Reporting by Philip Boucher-Hayes, sound engineer Brendan Russell, support divers Mick Crowley and Catherine Brosnan, boatman Aidan Day. Many thanks also to Andrew Murray from the Dune Moor on Inishbotham. If you know anything about this wreck, please email me falconblanco at rte.ie or join the conversation on social media, hashtag falconblanco. Falconblanco.